Matthew chapter 20. Uh, I, did, I took a look at how many weeks we have until Holy Week. And we might make it through all of the material. Or I might leave out just one chapter of either parables or end times things. Um, and then we'll see how that goes. But I think we'll get to the cross um, by Holy Week. And then the following Tuesday, we'll get to the empty tomb. And the Tuesday after that, traditionally, there's a pastor's conference somewhere. So, But after that, we would return then back and finish up whatever we had missed um, in the book. So we'll begin with chapter 20 here. Um, and Jesus is in the, this is the, in Matthew's gospel, this is most of what I'm going to call the Perean ministry. Um, just a couple things that happen here, in addition to one thing that happens with the mother of James and John later in this chapter. So Jesus begins, Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And I ask on the sheet, what's the main comparison? But I want to, before anybody says anything, I want to point out that the, in the parable, Jesus is never concerned with how much work anybody does or the quality of their work, or what the yield is in bushels or ephahs and what they're gathering and so forth. He just wants workers. And all he's really looking for is a day's work out of his workers. And he's willing to pay a day's wages. Um, and so we get the comparison into today's dollars, I suppose. Uh, a denarius in the text is our is our unit of, of currency, and that was a day's pay. What would a day's pay be today? What's eight hours times? You want to say $15 an hour? Yeah, that's about. Well, you tell me, you do the math then, because you're beyond my capabilities now. <laughs> well, It'd be it'd be a, a, a eighty that would end you'd end up being like at one hundred and twenty dollars, yep. right? With your fifteen dollars an hour, okay. so something like that for. But let's can we just say a hundred dollars? Is that fair enough? Just a hundred bucks. Everybody gets a hundred bucks. It's like he has a wallet full of of hundred dollar bills, right? And he's going to pay everybody their wages at the end of the day. Um, so he goes out as they did in those days, not having his own workers, but he would go into the marketplace to see who is out to get hired out as a day laborer. And he hired a bunch of guys to work in his vineyard. Um, the vineyard work isn't important to the parable either. It's just that that's where he needed work done in his vineyard. He could have said right in his field or he could have said in his barn or something like that. But he, he happens to say in his vineyard, we're just going to leave it at that and, and let the parable roll. So after agreeing to pay the workers a denarius, we're going to say $100 for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. He also went out about the third hour. So now we've gone from I'll say seven in the morning to about nine in the morning, reckoning hours from sunrise, at, we'll, we'll just say six. So now it's about nine in the morning. He goes out and saw others 
standing unemployed in the marketplace. And to these, he said, you also go into the vineyard and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. Um, and now it's just a little bit later in the day. Are they going to have more to do, less to do? Actually, it doesn't make any difference. They just are also going to work, right? Um, so no reference to the amount of work they're going to do, just the when. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. So if, if sunrise was at six, when is the sixth hour? Noon. And the ninth hour? Three in the afternoon. Getting late in the day, isn't it? By about three. Um, uh, so it did the same thing. When he went out about the eleventh hour, which is five, uh, he found others standing unemployed. And he said to them, why have you stood here all day unemployed? And they said to him, because no one hired us. Well, he told them, you also go into the vineyard. So it doesn't matter. He just keeps hiring and hiring and hiring. And he's generous. There's a lot to be done. There's always work to do. So he hires and hires, no matter what time of day. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages starting with the last group and ending with the first. So he, in, in, in the parable, that the, the, the workers who were there the longest or who were there earliest, I'll say, um, get to see what everybody else is paid, right? But what were they promised? A denarius, their $100. So when those who were hired around the 11th hour came, they each received a denarius. So he pulls out his wad of bills and pays them each. They get the full pay. When those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but they each received a denarius too. So, is it fair? Is it what he promised them? It's exactly what he promised them. Yeah. So who is he, if you say it's not fair, who is it unfair to? The people who came last. And in what way is it unfair to them? Yeah, they would expect to be paid less. But he doesn't. He is generous. He gives the full pay to everybody. They get the whole coin. After they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These are the firstlings. Is that a word? It is now. I said it out loud. The ones who were there first. Those who were last worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have endured the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not make an agreement with me for a denarius? So it's not like you're going to get more than I promised you. But take what is yours and go. I want to give to the last one hired the same as I also gave you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? In the same way, the last will be first and the first last. So they all get a reward. They all get paid. Now, when we get to this idea of the first last and the last first, I have um, two separate applications um, for this. And... I like the second one better. So I'll just read you the first one, if I may. That's on your seat, actually. 
Um, so Jesus cannot be saying to those who were in the front ranks of the kingdom will somehow end up in the rear and vice versa, but rather this, many who entered into faith were first, they, they were first, will one day leave it that they'll be last. And many who were unbelievers, they were last, will come to faith and die in faith and making them first. That's one way of looking at this parable. Um, and I've heard it preached that way. I've heard it applied that way. I probably have applied it that way in my life. But I like this guy much better. If you don't mind my reading somebody else. So the, 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 the last will be first and the first last. These words, he says, teach us to throw away all arrogance and self-righteousness. Even if you might think you are equal to Abraham, David, Peter, or Paul, for others may reach a higher degree of humility than you. So the last, or rather the first will be last, is a preaching of which? Law or gospel? Law. But the last will be first. These words teach us to hope and not despair. Even if you believe you have sinned like Pilate, Herod, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, the last will be first is a preaching of the gospel. Yeah. Who do you think that was who said that? It was Luther. It was Luther. <laughs> Went back to Luther, actually. For oh, don't do that. <laughs> but, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah. And I, 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 I think that when, when, you, when you wonder about a passage... To run, Luther, Dr. Luther is wonderful at teaching us to run back to what is basically law and gospel here. And if I have no other way of applying it, isn't law and gospel what God wants us to do? Yes, it is. So it's a marvelous way of running um, to the very basics of our faith and applying this remarkable parable. Anything else here? Okay. Now, on the way up out of Perea. So I made a big deal last time out of this whole big Perean ministry thing. Well, it's all over now. Six months have come and gone. And here we are leaving Perea, which is that part of, of Israel that's on the other side of the Jordan River. I should be doing this with my hand. Um, over on the west. And uh, he's coming back out of it. And I want to ask you a question. What specific details can you get right about your own death. <laughs> Do you know the time? No. Do you know the place? <laughs> Only if you stay here. Uh, the manner of your death? No. Things other people would do or say while you're dying? And the reason for your death, we, we finally don't, well, I mean, no, I mean the specific circumstances. I did say at the beginning, the specific details you can get right. When I was uh, a freshman at Northwestern College, this is back just in about 90, yeah, 91, um, fall of 91, early in my time there, I remember a hot rod, a red sports car, zooming past me on Highway 60 um, through the back roads of Wisconsin. 
And not far from maybe Columbus or something like that on the way from between Poinette and Watertown, I came around a corner and there was that car um, up against a tree with its wheels, I mean, up in the air. So the nose of the car was straight down. The car was wrapped around the tree. The driver was obviously killed. The thing was still smoking. I mean, it had only been two or three minutes since he passed me. And here he is. Uh, he, he obviously couldn't get all the way around the corner, hit the ditch, and banged against the tree. And I, as, I, as I got there, the police were just arriving on the scene and waved me through. They said, I, you know, you don't want to be here. And I said, he just passed me a couple minutes ago. They said, I'm not surprised, and that was all. But could that, could that guy tell me anything about the moment of his death? You know, or when it would happen or anything like that. For him, the moment of his death was a sudden, out of control, probably split second, right? It probably took no time at all, and it was just suddenly done. Um, and it might be that an individual lives a long time or suffers a long time, or maybe not. Um, but we can't get these details about our death. Yet, what is Jesus about to do? He's going to get everything right. This is In Matthew, this is the third time Jesus has predicted his, his crucifixion. And here we have a whole list. I think it's seven or eight uh, things that he gets perfectly right about his coming death. So as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, by the way, where are we in Israel if we say we're going up to, Jer to Jerusalem? Anywhere. Yeah, any, it doesn't matter. Any, it, it happens, we, I, we happen to know that he was crossing from Perea across the Jordan River. He's going to be going through Jericho and then to get to Jerusalem, which is the path that you would take. Um, so that's the route he's taking. But he is right now somewhere between or somewhere near the Jordan River. Um, and he's, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. So as he's going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, or on the road, he said to them, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. So in this prediction, he's already got one thing, which is the where, right? Also, he has the when, because it's this trip. I mean, we're, a, what, a, maybe two weeks away from his crucifixion at this point. The next chapter begins with Palm Sunday. So it's, it, we're here already. We're in the spring of, of, of the year. And Jesus continues, The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts in the law, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock, flog, and crucify him. Those pretty specific details? Yeah, even to what people say, the mockery, the things people do, the flogging, the crucifixion. And on the third day, he will be raised. So what a list of things that he gets absolutely correct at this point. And uh, so let's take a look at what Jesus got right about his, his death here. So first of all, the place at Jerusalem on his journey, this journey, which is about a week, maybe two weeks away, and the details handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law or scribes, condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles, who are who? 
Who are the Gentiles? The Romans, specifically. Um, they will mock, flog. What, what does flog mean? Whipped, whipped. In John's Gospel, the whipping is one verse. And you kind of run past it as you're reading everything. But how long do you think the whipping took? Forty minus one, okay. yeah. So, so what's the longest you've ever spent in the dentist's chair? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I spent three hours in a dentist's chair in, in Mankato a couple of years ago. I had all of my gums redone, and I had three sessions each three hours. And, you know, you sit there staring at the ceiling and you're kind of goofy. And, and uh, I forgot, or maybe they didn't tell me that I was supposed to have a driver to bring me home, but I drove myself home each time, which was probably not the wisest thing to do. But, uh, but uh, the flogging, uh, uh, to be tied to this thing, this piece of stone or cement, uh, with uh, uh, bolts driven into it that you would be chained to or tied to called a rostrum to expose more of your back to make it more convenient for the centurion to do his work with the whip and, uh, and then to have that just go on and on and on. And if a guy might happen to lapse into unconsciousness, they would get some water and bring him out of it so he could feel the next one too and so and on and on. Um, and then crucify him. A simple word, isn't it? But kind of an involved process for the guy who's having it happen. Because you've got you've to you transport the cross out to where it's going to happen. And the Romans did not do that. The guy, we learn that, don't we? The guy being crucified had to carry his, his cross out there to where it's going to be outside the city. Then they found a decent place. They laid it down nearby. Then he laid on it. And I suppose most guys were kicking and screaming at that point, so there's some effort involved. And tied, nailed, maybe both, certainly nailed. And then they would winch it up. Um, one of the early church fathers has a description of the apparatus they used. On a ship, they would call it a windlass. It was a crank that you would turn to hoist the thing up in the air with maybe some kind of a, of a rack that always reminds me when I've seen woodcuts of it, of the, the, the pole my dad would hang deer from. You know, you've got two trees with just a pole lashed between them and just to, just, just to get the rope to make the thing go up in the air like that. Um, and then how long did Jesus' crucifixion last? Six hours from around 9 in the morning to around 3 in the afternoon. Yeah. And the hours of darkness, oh, St. Paul's members were called, were, were what? How, from when to when? Noon to 3. Which is why we do our tray or a three-hour service from noon to 3 on Good Friday. Yeah. And, however, on the third day, he will be raised. So nine things Jesus gets dead right about his coming death. Here. Did you count ten? No, I was just, you're punny, sort of. He got it dead right. 
Oh, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to. All right, now a mother's request. So, the mother of Zebedee's sons, Mrs. Zebedee, came to him with her sons, kneeling and asking something of him. Um, here in this famous painting of it, she's not kneeling. But this is, this is the request of the mother of James and John. Um, so he said to her, what do you want? Does that seem almost like a rude thing? Or could it just be an innocuous, what would you like? You know, it could be either one. Um, I, I don't know if we talked about it here in Matthew, but I sometimes do when we're teaching a gospel. Pay attention to the first words Jesus says in the four gospels. Um, have you ever thought about doing that before? When you're reading the gospel, and if you have a, especially if you have a red letter edition where it's easy then, just page back to chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3 and wherever Jesus starts speaking and look at the very first thing that Jesus says. In Matthew, the first thing he speaks is to John the Baptist who was hesitating about baptizing him. And Jesus says, it is necessary for you to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That's the first thing Jesus says. And isn't fulfilling all righteousness, that is keeping the law perfectly, the theme of Matthew's gospel? You know, it, it seems like that to me. Um, you get to Mark's gospel, and the first thing Jesus says are to a couple of disciples who were following him, and he turns around and says, what do you want? You know, as if to say, what is it you're looking for? And then Mark answers that for people who are reading the gospel to find out about Christ. But um, just take a look at those four things, the first thing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see if you, can, if you think that it applies to the rest of the gospel. There, I, it occurred to me again this weekend, reading the, the, the gospel lesson for the weekend, because we got to hear, a, we got to hear twice in the same passage the next day. And in John's gospel, we have this opening where it's next day, next day, next day, and then three days later. And we go from, the, from John the Baptist introducing Christ as the Lamb of God to the wedding at Cana in a week. With all these little incidents that happen between the things. And it's like Holy Week part one. And then John's gospel ends, of course, with Holy Week, the one we think of. But these two weeks that bookend the ministry of Christ. Um, I wonder if that was on John's mind. Because otherwise he doesn't bother to say the next day, the next day. Except at the very beginning, at the very end. It's just a curiosity about the gospels. Well, here, uh, to, the, to um, um, uh, Elizabeth here. What do you want? She said to him, promise that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. What is she asking for? Sure. Is it, does she mean the kingdom on earth or the kingdom in heaven? We have a difference of opinion in the room. Because the text doesn't say. We don't know what was on her mind. Did she understand everything perfectly yet? I don't know. 
I know that I don't, but maybe she had a better understanding than me. But she just wants in the kingdom one to be a, a, the right handy and one to be the left handy. You know. By the way, which son would probably be sitting on the right hand to a mother? The older one. So it's probably James. Yeah, yeah. Jesus answered, you, and by the way, it's you, plural. Who's Jesus talking to? No, it's the boys. It's James and John. You guys, Jesus says, looking past the kneeling woman. You, you guys, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, yeah, we are. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. Um, and by the way, what is it that Jesus has just described? His execution, a couple of verses before. So, yeah, you're going to drink my cup. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not for me to give. I don't get to choose that. Rather, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. We like to do that in every walk of life. We like to try to manipulate someone into telling us something that they don't have the authority to tell us. Um, But it does happen. Um, um, I have an example. Should I bring it out now or not? Okay. Uh, um, uh, I, I, uh, I suddenly heard from a member um, a week ago that uh, he would very much like us to uh, drop this new hymnal to go back to hymnals, to the Lutheran hymnal, and also, while he's on the subject, to go back to the King James Version. Can I, can I ask you, just in a practical sense, what would that cost the congregation? I wonder if it would even be possible, because the, the Lutheran hymnals out of print and you might think, oh, I've got one at home, but how many uh, Lutheran hymnals could we find that were pew-ready? You know. Um, I, I know of a, of a congregation in Wisconsin where they do use the King James Version. Um, uh, a friend of... Uh, one of our, I think one of our interns a couple years ago had a friend who was, who um, knew a staff minister who worked at that congregation and who said that just to teach catechism to their children because they were using the King James Version, um, it took, out of an hour, it took 45 minutes to explain the verse to the kids before you ever got to the lesson part. Just, just translating what is a 400-year-old dialect of English that most of us, most of us, do not speak. Um, uh, 
I studied Shakespearean English, which is what the King James Version is written in. Um, I wanted to teach high school Shakespeare before I studied to become a pastor. That was my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And I would, I would, I would be terrified to teach in the King James English. Um, and I'm going to illustrate that with one question. Can any of you tell me the difference between you and thou? The difference in the force of the words between you and thou. Brad, do you have an idea? Spanish has formal and informal pronouns. Who knew that? In Spanish, it's to you or usted, which is the formal you. Yeah. In Elizabethan English, early modern English is what we're, that's what that is, by the way. Shakespeare and the King James Version are early modern English. Don't ever call them Old English unless you can tell me what chweat means, which really is Old English. Because um, um, I also studied Beowulf. I quoted Beowulf a couple days ago in the Bible class. But um, uh, 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 in early modern English, they also used two pronouns, uh, formal and informal. By the way, Greek doesn't, Hebrew doesn't. There are no formal or informal pronouns anywhere in the Bible. If you're going to say thou, you should say thou all the way through. If you're going to say you, you should say you all the way through because there ain't no other animal in the Bible. But in early modern English, thou, Brad is correct, thou was the informal pronoun. That's what you would say to your child or your girlfriend or your pal, thou. You is what you would say formally to the king or the duke. And the easiest way to see this in action is to go and rent Romeo and Juliet and watch the opening scene only, the one where the boys are fighting in the street because as they're yelling insults at each other, it's all thou this and thee this and thine that. And then the duke comes out and everything becomes your. Okay? Um, you never hear anybody ever say, thy grace or thou grace. It's always your grace. Right? Make sense? And, and if and we can go back to the hymnal for a second in the same dialect. If anybody here can tell me what vouchsafe means, I, I might even begin to consider using the ancient liturgy. Because we said vouchsafe every Sunday. It's in the liturgy. No, no, no. It's more uh, like, please. Yeah. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to forgive our sins. So um, um, just, uh, uh, although in, in, in the age when, when, when uh, some of those liturgical pieces, which go back beyond 1941, they go back to the 19th century, when some of them were being written, and Isaac Watts was, and, and, and G.F. Handel were the geniuses of composition, and the, the music is in, hammered out in straight chords that are, you know, that even I can sometimes play. 
Um, it was a very playable liturgy, and I understand the desire for it. But to go back to, to preaching in a dialect that we don't even speak any longer, and to make our little ones try to understand it is... Um, and I, I wouldn't want to accuse anybody of, of, of this without you know, further... In, but it, it's, it's, we're not loving our children enough if we're going to make them go back to that. Which they, it's not back for them. It would be, you know, why not just go to German for our children who have never learned German? You know, or Latin. Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that too. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. In fact, it's almost oppressive. You know. So, all right. Back to drink this cup. Um, here in, the, in, in verse 23. A um, couple of verses from Isaiah. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Get up, Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup filled with the Lord's wrath from his hand. You drank it, you drained the chalice, the cup that makes you stagger. So this is the cup Jesus was about to drink. Was the, the cup of God's wrath. And another one, a couple of verses later. Therefore hear this, you afflicted woman. This again is Jerusalem. A woman drunk, but not from wine. This is what the Lord God says. Your God who will contend for his people. Look, I am taking the cup that makes you stagger out of your hand. The chalice, the cup filled with my wrath. Never again will you drink from it. So what has Christ done? Removed the cup of wrath. So no, it's not for you to drink the cup, but to have it taken from you. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, we're still in the same account here. When the ten heard about this, who are the ten? Everybody except for James and John, right? Okay. And as the gospel rolls into the end of the gospel, you're going to hear some unusual numbers as 12 sometimes becomes 11, sometimes becomes 10, depending on who's there and who's not there, right? So for example, in the, in the upper room, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Easter story, we again have the 10 at one point. Who are the 10 there? Everybody except for Judas and Thomas. Yeah, so you have this back and forth of the 10, the 12. And later on, we're back to 12 because Judas is going to get replaced. Um, the disciples will replace him with who? Matthias. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when the 10 heard of this, they were angry with the two brothers. I think an, another translation might say indignant or something like that. But Jesus summoned them and said, You know that the rulers of the nations lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It will not be that way among you. So Jesus says, Let's take this whole business of who's in charge off of the table. Because who's in charge? God is in charge. Jesus will say, My heavenly Father is in charge. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
uh, marvelous theme for the gospel. In fact, I often quote this as the theme for Mark's gospel in particular, but here it is in Matthew. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Anything else there? What did happen to James? First of the apostles to die. What happened to John? The last of the apostles to die. There's curiosity there too. You had something else to say, Diane. Yeah. The devil loves to flip everything on its head. Absolutely everything on its head. Look at the way that the Reformed treat the sacraments. Who do we ever exclude from baptism? No one. Do we take an exclusion in the Lord's Supper? Yes. Why do we do that? Because the Bible does that in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. There's a warning about the Lord's Supper. What do the Reformed do? They put an exclusion on baptism. And they begin to invite everybody into the Lord's Supper. The, the, the devil loves to flip everything upside down on its head. Um, and then, what else does the devil do? He starts pointing fingers at those who do it the way that God's will is. And look at how unloving they are. Look at how terrible this is. Um, uh, 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 and I understand completely when we have questions, because we're going to have questions. Um, any of you who know anything about my immediate family know that uh, 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 you know, we had four different denominations going on in, in my family. I take, can't take communion with anybody um, in my immediate family. And so, of course, we're going to have uh, uh, you know, questions about it, and it's good to ask them, because then we learn. Then we learn. Um, But when an outsider points and says how unloving of them, I hope that all of us can can say, no, this is what scripture says. Let's move on to Jericho. What's Jericho most famous for? The walls fell down. Uh, I saw an article just this morning Uh, I don't know how old it is, but it came up right away when I was looking for a decent map of Jericho, uh, which you didn't quite get, but uh, you got a pretty good map of Jericho. Um, And that is, uh, 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 I think the article said something like, proof once more against the inaccuracy, against the, uh, 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 what was it, Uh, or uh, proof challenged again, something like that, um, about the inerrancy of scripture. So, and it was all about Jericho, like Jericho could never have happened and things like that. Um, But let's take a look at at, at what happened with Jericho. First of all, where is it? This is central Israel. You see Jerusalem there. You see the outline of the city of Jerusalem and you get an idea of the scale of the map. So, between the upper arrow of Jerusalem, the old center of the city, and Bethlehem is about five miles. 
That is the distance as the crow flies between here and MVL. Okay? Jerusalem is where you are, and MVL is where Bethlehem is, where our kids are. Make sense? All right. At least some of us have kids there. All righty. Uh, at the moment. And maybe uh, 15 miles, 10 miles from Jericho, which is four miles or so, maybe not quite four miles from the banks of the Jordan River. Okay, so that's, that's kind of where we are here. We're north of the Dead Sea. That's where Joshua crossed. And this is where Israel entered the Promised Land. And now Jesus enters the Promised Land, at, also at Jericho, um, using much the same path that Joshua did. An artist's reconstruction of the ruins of old Jericho, which is north of new Jericho. I'll get to that in a minute. But old Jericho looked like this. Seems to have had uh, uh, three different uh, tiers. There was, first of all, a ditch around it, which in medieval times you would have called a moat, if only it had water. This was just a ditch. Um, and then a difficult hill to climb, which is often called a revetment. And then there are certain areas where there's a stairway up that difficult hill because it's just a sand pile, actually. Pretty hard for an army to get up a sand pile um, unless, there's a, unless there are actual gates. And notice all of the gates in this picture, which is drawn accurately, all of the gates, you have to make a right-hand turn to get into the city, Correct. That's exactly right. Why did they do that? Because most soldiers were right-handed. And you can't swing a sword at, at very well as you're making a right-hand turn through a doorway into a, into a chamber. So it's, it's constructed with, with defense in mind. Um, so it gives the defenders all the advantage and the attackers all the disadvantage they could, they could maintain. So all of these gates, and then there's an, an outer city with a rampart uh, with an inner wall. That's the inner city. And so you got three different lines of defense there after the ditch even. So an, and, and can you see why the people of Jericho laughed at Joshua? You're not, nobody can get in here. You're not getting in here either. And the Lord's answer? Your walls will not keep us out. Um, yeah, so we have an issue here in the text because Matthew and Mark say that Jesus was leaving Jericho and Luke says that Jesus was entering Jericho. Um, how well have you paid attention in the past? Can somebody solve this for me before I solve it for you? I see your hand, Brad. Will you share it with us, Brad? Yeah. The other city. Yeah. Yeah. It is almost literally which end of the stadium are you sitting on? And I say that because that's the distance between Old and New Jericho, about 100 yards. So the ruins of Old Jericho were just north of New Jericho, um, and, and that's the difference. So here we get, uh, this is a pretty good map 
um, from my favorite map-making period of biblical lands, the 1840s to 1880s. This is an 1885 hand-drawn map. On the right, the squiggly line is the Jordan River. And on the left, the really super squiggly line is the crest of the Judean highlands. Okay, so the, the mountain slopes and tops. This is about a five-mile map. You see three miles drawn out in the center at the bottom, that little line there. So that's about how far it is. It's about four miles from the Jordan, up one of the two wadis, either the wadi um, El Kelt, the second one from the bottom, which would run from the mountains past the southern side of the city. It would bring um, rainwater in the wintertime through the southern part of the city. Good place for a ditch to be left in the city with gates on either end. The upper wadi, um, the wadi Nuayame, uh, uh, um, is, uh, runs north of the city, but would have run through the old city the same way. And that ditch is probably the path that Joshua took from the plains of the Jordan up to the city to get to the city for them to the Jews to march around the city. And I'm 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 guessing it was probably a logical path, although not necessarily the path that Jesus took as well. So old city ruins are about here. That was that double walled city that I showed you the picture of a little while ago. The new city, which still exists today, is here. And in between them, just a, about a hundred yards, depending on where you are, between the old city ruins and the new city. Why not build the new city on top of the old city ruins? They didn't own bulldozers. It's really hard to move granite and marble and stuff once it's all, once it's just junk all over the place. You might steal um, some old granite and marble to decorate your patio, but uh, to, you know, if, 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 if you bought a lot and there was a destroyed house on the left and a nice open plot on the right, where might you want to build your house? You know, on the nice plot, especially if there's no bulldozer, you know, to be seen or no way of transporting that junk. And so they left it. Old Jericho is still there today. Um, the ruins are still around. It's, there, it's, it's going up the slopes of a hill and there is a, 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 like a ravine in the middle of it, but it's where old Jericho was. So I'm going to just suggest, please suggest. I'm only suggesting, not insisting, but I'm suggesting. These are also for online comments. I am suggesting that Jesus may have taken the old path up the wadi from the old city and then up higher into the new city, um, which accounts for the text leaving one, entering the other, just exactly as Brad described it. Fair enough? Okay. Anybody else want to ask anything about the map as long as it's up there? That's a successful map. No questions. Okay, let's move on. There were two blind men sitting by the road. Another account says there was one blind man, but only one guy speaks. Does it make any difference how many blind guys there were? Not so much. When they heard, by the way, his name isn't in Matthew. What was his name? The blind man. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. 
When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Anybody know how to say Lord, have mercy in uh, Latin? It's from the old hymn, no? Kyrie eleison. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Yeah. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be quiet. Why would the crowd tell people to be quiet when Jesus is walking by? Was Jesus maybe, oh, go ahead. Maybe uh, Jesus was explaining something to them while they were walking. Yeah, he may have been redoing a parable or, or something like that or talking, um, uh, whatever he was doing. He may have been shouting up at a little man up in a tree. Because that's, that's, that's Luke's story. Who is the little guy's name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus up in the tree. Um, and Jesus was going to tell the parable of the ten minas um, also. That's not in Matthew, but it's, but it's in Luke. Um, so that might have been the beginning of that account, but it, Matthew just points us to what was happening here. And this is the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be quiet. But they shouted even louder, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Um, when had they heard about Jesus? This is the only time in the Gospels Jesus is ever in Jericho. As far as we know, during his ministry at least, he never went there except this one time. So he met these blind guys out between the cities and then he went into the new city and met Zacchaeus, ate at his house, got him out of the tree and told a parable. He's been around for three years. His reputation has widespread. His widespread. Excellent. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they've heard about him and they want in. Have mercy. And also he's been gone for six months. He's been over in Perea. And they've been wondering, well, we heard he left Galilee. Where'd he go? And uh, now he's coming back. And so they shouted even louder, have mercy on us, son of Lord, son of David, the third time. Jesus stopped and called to them, what do you want me to do for you? Similar, right? What do you want? But this time, what do you want me to do for you? And they told him, Lord, open our eyes. Um, what a simple, marvelous request. That's it. Jesus was moved with compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and they followed him. So these men begin to follow Jesus, follow after him. Um, in Greek, um, it isn't, this almost sounds like a command, open our eyes. It actually isn't in Greek. It's, uh, it's a request. Um, it's something called a subjunctive, which is any word like would or should or sometimes have to or must or gotta, but especially would or should. But um, they, and they're really just asking that our eyes might be opened, please. Um, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Why does he touch their eyes? I mean, did he have to? No. No. But why do you think? He did that a lot, just showing his compassion. That he would touch people, some of them who were not touchable. And it's just, it was just a direct contact with 
Lepers, um, a dead kid, he touched him, you know, and, uh, and here are these blind men. Also, in, in one case at least, where we had a man who was uh, both blind and deaf, Jesus touches his tongue, puts his fingers in his ears, um, and, and it's a gradual healing. And I think in that case, it's so that the young man will know who it is who's healing him and not just think it's a random event. Like, like when your ears are blocked up, then all of a sudden you get your hearing, you know, like your ears pop and you get your hearing back. That's not what happened to that kid. And here, these two blind men, they want to know, they, don't, they can't see Jesus. So he comes and touches them so that when their eyes open, that's who they see. This is who they see. What will you see when your dead, blind eyes are opened as you are raised? Jesus. Same thing. Jesus will raise you from the dead. Pastor, would you think that maybe also something to do with all the people with some sort of defect are considered as unclean and Jews are not Yeah, that's part of what Diane, I think, was getting at was when, when, when somebody is unclean um, or has a defect and maybe, you know, should I touch them, should I not touch them? Um, with, with most of us, and if we were living in Old Testament times, if somebody came with a disease or whatever it was, or a woman in the month after she had a baby or anything like that, to come into contact with them would mean that I become ceremonially unclean. But with, or, or a dead body. But with Jesus, um, Jesus does not become unclean because of us. Jesus has the opposite effect. He makes us clean. So he cleanses us. He brings us to life and on and on down the list of our sins. So everything we bring to Jesus, he heals. All of it. And their response, they followed him. Thank you all. God bless you today. Be careful, please, when you leave the building. Don't let this be the afternoon you talk about for the rest of your life. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.